Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas. We are also fortunate to have with us Catherine Kroll of Brown Advisory. Catherine serves as Director of Equity ESG Research and Strategy for the firm. Amantia, Catherine, it's great to be with you both, and thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on UBS Conversations. Up front for our listeners, I do want to point out that our conversation today will tie right into the latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which can now be located up on UBS.com for your reference. So with that, we have a few focus topics we want to dive into for this month, beginning with artificial intelligence. So Amantia, there, of course, has been a lot of buzz surrounding AI in recent months. And within the publication, you do write about how generative AI will ultimately become table stakes technology for companies. So in what ways may we see generative AI be a disruptor over the longer term? And how might companies adopt or adapt over the medium term? What's more timely these days than thinking about AI, which truly has become almost a, a buzzword and one of the drivers of, of the hottest topics uh, in the last quarterly earnings announcements that we saw just a few weeks ago. So um, it's interesting as more and more firms and investors are, are using the term AI, um, we're, we're thinking kind of of two ways through which uh, we can analyze and understand it as uh, as as kind of a frame of reference. Um, firstly, we think of AI as a tool. And then secondly, we also think of AI as a structural driver of disruption. So if, if you think about AI as a tool, really all that means is, um, is AI as an enabler, as part of the solution set or the toolkit that every company, regardless of the business area in which they operate in, um, is going to increasingly lean on to support achieving their business objectives. So at the moment, we may think that AI and tech has been the tech sector uh, may rhyme, may go together. That's that's been some of the price action that we've seen recently. But really, we actually think that AI as a tool can be leveraged across multiple industries, from healthcare to education to financial services, just to name um, three, really. Now, um, when when we talk about AI being table stakes, we think about it in terms of it being used as a tool. And here, um, a simple analogy to think about is just, you know, email. Uh, when the email, the first email was sent on the ARPANET back in 1971. And just within a few kind of short years, a few decades, a couple decades maybe, email now became ubiquitous, right? It wasn't a matter of finding those businesses that were using it to give them efficiency. You would be surprised to find any that don't use it. Um, so similarly, AI as a tool, uh, this won't happen overnight but eventually will become the stable stakes technology. And in the near term, in the we'll call it short to medium term, the companies that will differentiate will be the ones that can adapt and quickly adopt this technology uh, uh, and to kind of uh, gain on those efficiencies over their peers. Now, over the longer term, we think AI does have a lot of opportunity as a structural driver in the way that this as technology can be leveraged to rethink some business models. And here uh, we can we can think about ties to sustainability. Um, 
In the report, we'll look at two areas specifically. We'll look at healthcare as well as education. So there's two places where we have major sustainability challenges that need to be addressed, especially meeting our sustainable development goals uh, for 2030, but also more broadly and beyond that. Um, and and you know, and these are the two areas that we're focusing on. So. In healthcare, very briefly, I'd say um, innovation and service provision um, are likely to benefit here from these new technological tools that will be available. Um, Near-term use cases would be tied to the digitalization of healthcare, to that leading to improved collection of healthcare data, to additional transparency, to helping with diagnosis in real time. Think, for example, uh, very efficient and reliable uh, kind of wearable devices like smartwatches that, that could help accelerate the diagnosis um, kind of element. Now, Beyond kind of the patient treatment element, we think that there's opportunity here for uh, AI applications to help with also um, the development of, of drug pipelines. Uh, and so kind of moving us closer to addressing some of those hard-to-combat, hard-to-find to cures for diseases. Now, switching over to another social topic that is important to us is education. Um, what we know by research from Harvard University School of Education is that personalized learning is a cornerstone of improving education outcomes. And here is where we have this opportunity of AI, large data models, chatbots even, to help students and help educators know exactly what every student needs and then help kind of uh, nudge and get them closer to that education delivery. Now, of course, um, you know, I'm talking all about the opportunities. We probably need to stop and spend some time. You're talking about the challenges of implementing AI ethically and efficiently and in a way that reaches everyone. Uh, but let me stop there on kind of the exciting part of the opportunities that's here. Well, it sounds like there are no shortage of opportunities, and clearly AI is having an impact across many different sectors and areas. If we run with this a bit further, Catherine, to welcome you into the conversation, can you speak a bit how the introduction of generative AI, how it supports sustainability across sectors and has ultimately a positive impact. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just so interesting, isn't it? You, you mentioned it's become a buzz term, but I think in many ways it's a buzz term that we don't have a common definition for. And if you're an expert on AI, which, which I'm not, I would venture to say a, a generalist at best. I think increasingly there are very few people who completely understand the, the upside and the downside that generative AI poses, not just for our investment universe, but far more broadly. And I think that that potential for good and bad, it can all often feel almost cinematic, um, but really the, the, the real life application is, is quite exciting. So you look at something as simple as the foundation model where, you know, a lot of criticism is that it needs to be fed massive amounts of energy to operate in, in the first place. But then you can also see generative AI helping to solve for that. So look at Google DeepMind, which is an AI research lab out of Alphabet. It's been working on applying AI to actually improve energy efficiency. It's targeting data centers. It's looking at how generative models can optimize cooling systems in data centers and then ultimately reducing energy consumption and, and environmental impact. And I think this, this brings us to that conversation around AI is not a substitute for policy, for the transition itself. It's not a magic wand, but hopefully it can help us catch up. We're, we're behind that once treasured 
1.5 degree scenario. We might be behind the, the two degree scenario at this point. And so we need intervention. Um, and the application is, is really, really deep as you know, we've, we've both mentioned at this point. Look at construction, look at generative design, efficiencies in engineering, weather prediction that could negate harm, regenerative agriculture. And, and of course, probably most exciting is this emission regulation from some of the biggest carbon producers in the world. Um, and so I, I think, again, just as, as a novice, as a layperson, it's pretty easy for me to see a really diverse application set. So put that in expert hands, and I think we can get there. And, and I'll just note, you know, often with generative AI, it feels so general, it feels so broad. And we did, and we should, uh, maybe not in this conversation, but uh, hit on the, the risks, right? We, we know they're out there. They probably occupy the majority of the dialogue, the, the kind of way that AI might need a pause, the doom and gloom. It hits on the surveillance economy, program bias, there's more nefarious use cases, and that, that requires eyes and ears. But like everything, it, it has highs and lows. It has that upside and the downside. So being able to focus on the opportunity is, is really important from my view as an investor. Well, it is indeed an exciting technology. It's quickly evolving. It seems like we're learning more and more about it every day, including on the risk front. So here at this day, and the conversation will continue, though appreciate the insights on AI today. I do want to pivot a bit because we have a couple of other topics we want to hit on. Maybe for a second focus topic, we can continue on with our ongoing renewable energy conversation. So Amatia, within the publication, you do mention how hydropower generation has been somewhat of a disappointment in recent years. Curious as to why that has been the case and how might global investment in this area perhaps shift in the coming years and why is investment in hydropower important? Sure. Thanks, Dan. And um, it's funny. I mean, we are shifting gears here a little bit, although I I kind of want to also pause on Catherine's comment on the the use of AI or technologies really in thinking about this question of the energy transition, which the reason why we keep coming back to it is because it's so ever-present as an investment opportunity, um, as as well as a challenge that needs to be addressed uh, with, with pressing needs. Now, what's interesting here is, and as we think about the global uh, renewable power um, kind of generation capacity globally across all regions, um, we often talk about wind, we often talk about solar as those areas of expansion. And so we're so focused on kind of those uh, two opportunities that really hydropower has been um, a source of energy that is in fact renewable and that has been around for decades. Um, hydropower uh, represents 69%, so, so a little more than two-thirds of global renewable energy generation capacity, and it's about 16% of total uh, electricity generation. So it's, it's so important for us to think about this area, and, and what's been disappointing to your point, Dan, is that um, – uh, hydropower generation fell by double digits across southern Europe, across the U.S. and China in 2022, causing significant challenges. We talked about it um, late last year about the challenges in China that, that resulted of uh, kind of because of, of unexpected droughts that really uh, led to diminished uh, hydro capacity and therefore caused blackouts and so forth. So. 
you know, it, kind of our our listeners here and really citizens and investors may be concerned. What does this mean as we're pushing towards more renewable energy if this source that we've so far considered as reliable is turning out not to be so reliable? Now, the question for us was, uh, you know, why? What, what resulted in this shift? Um, one thing that we do know is that there's with increasing uh, changing climate patterns, there's a higher risk of increasing drought across multiple regions, uh, which, which presents a risk for hydro generation, for utilities that, that uh, kind of uh, rely on, on this type of energy. Um, now, what kind of looking into it a little more, what the International Renewable Energy Agency, or IRENA, um, is attributing this shift to more volatility from hydropower um, is really to a change structurally in, in how this form of energy is being used currently. Most hydropower plants were built to be the baseload power generation capacity in the regions where uh, kind of we rely on them. And however, what's happening is that with the dramatic ramp up of solar energy and with and wind energy capacity as well, which is variable, you know, it, it's only there when the sun shines and the wind blows, so to speak. Um, hydropower then is increasingly shifting to, to use those uh, kind of peak loads, moments of demand where the supply for wind and solar um, isn't there. And this shift in the use of hydropower is changing how plants are, are now operating. They're operating at partial loads. Um, they have increased starts and stop cycles, and this is affecting their efficiency. So when you combine this change in how they're being used together with those patterns of drought that we've seen, that explains um, kind of the, the, the challenges, essentially, that, that we observed over the last year. So in a way, I mean, yes, this is a thing to pay attention to, absolutely. Um, on the other hand, it's not all kind of doom and gloom on this area. Um, in, in a recent study that we noted in, in the publication Nature Water, uh, we saw kind of an, a study that is proposing overviews of ways to manage hydropower plants and projects in ways that are environmentally viable, different concern, as well as economically viable and thinking about these kind of challenges uh, as, as we're adding new forms of energy creation to the grids. Um, so we think there's opportunity there, but certainly any new investment needs to be taking these areas into account um, as our, really our system of energy here is gradually evolving over the next few decades. From hearing that, Amantia, from an investor's standpoint, there seems to be a lot of considerations, a lot to be mindful of. So, Catherine, any guidance as far as how investors can go about identifying winners in this space? Yeah, I, I think when we look at the portfolio of renewables, there's obviously room for a little bit of everything. From the perspective of public equities, we've been pretty limited in, in where we can find exciting investment opportunities in hydropower. And that's not to say there aren't companies that are doing a good job or perhaps uh, doing a less than good job. There, there certainly are um, potential investments that are playing around in this field within our, our kind of quality bias landscape that Brown Advisory adapts. But, you know, I, I think about a company like Brookfield Renewable Partners, very large publicly traded pure play renewable power platform on a, on a global scale, and they have a significant portfolio of hydropower assets 
across North America, South America, Europe, Asia. They own and operate um, many hydropower plants, various sizes, and, and definitely a, a dominant player in this sector. But like I said, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I think you know, it was outlined uh, quite well in, in uh, the, the pros and cons of focusing on hydropower. I think maybe what's more interesting, again, from my seat, is looking at how that, that previous conversation around AI can actually um, flow into hydropower. So, you know, thinking about the, the role that AI plays in hydropower generation and management, whether it be generation, generation optimization, um, reservoir ma- management, energy grid optimization, flood forecasting. I think this is a particular interest where AI can aid in flood forecasting by analyzing historical and real-time data, like the weather patterns, water levels, river flow rates, and then machine learning can detect those patterns, provide accurate predictions, enable early warning systems, and and ultimately help uh, negate some of the harm that, that, that we discussed. Um, when we were looking at generative AI earlier on. So, again, the, the intersectionality of, of technology and climate, um, of AI and sustainable outputs, these, these, are, these are certainly areas of our focus, even if hydropower more explicitly is not. Yeah, it is interesting to hear about the role these technologies play in this context. And from an investor's standpoint, in this case, clearly you need to be mindful of the risks involved. So thank you, Amantia and Catherine, for highlighting those. Uh, Moving on to our third and final focus topic for this month. In acknowledgement of June being Pride Month, Amantia, within the publication, you do write about how companies that hire workers from diverse communities such as LGBTQ+, tend to be more innovative and profitable over time. So why do you think that is? Yeah, thank you, Dan. And, and it's right, June is Pride Month, which is why we, we've uh, had a special focus on the LGBTQ plus community. But I would step uh, kind of back here for a second and just note that um, while this is a focus on this community, really this ties to our broader considerations as investors on the importance that companies have to do two things. Firstly, and uh, uh, kind of adapting to changing societal norms, including changing uh, consumer preferences and consumer uh, kind of uh, uh, identities uh, and, and kind of composition. Um, and then on the other side, uh, in, and this stands for all companies, regardless of whether they're consumer-facing or not, um, adapting to one of their core internal stakeholders, which is their employees, right? Companies, in some ways, can control very few things. Uh, they can control the, the businesses they go into, and they can control, you know, their costs, and, and they can control who they are, who their employees are, how do they incentivize them, uh, what that workforce looks like. And so in thinking about this area of human capital management, Really, we care about uh, companies that are better at uh, managing to identifying and then meeting the needs of employees that are diverse in order to have the best person in the seat for the job uh, and, and have them kind of generate the additional value that they're supposed to. So with that long-winded preamble, perhaps, in thinking about the LGBT community, we think it's important that companies are increasingly aware of who their employee pool is. Um, As we look at data from uh, survey organizations like Gallup, as well as other
others, uh, we see that both here in the U.S. and globally, there's an increasing uh, over time uh, number of individuals that identify as being members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, just speaking to the U.S., over the, the across the entire population, there's about a little over 7% uh, of people that identify as being LGBTQ+, and uh, that really has doubled in the last two decades from a little over 3%. Um, in 2012, I believe, right? So uh, one decade. <laughs> so so significant number of people that are becoming more comfortable in expressing that this is their belonging implies uh, that it's important for companies to have policies in place that make these employees feel uh, safe and comfortable in, in who they are in the workplaces so that they increase their chances of retaining them. This element of retention is particularly important in labor markets where you have tight labor market conditions, where it's difficult uh, to retain employees. And, and we've seen this situation in the U.S. and here for a number of years now. Uh, in fact, that's one of those drivers of the kind of macro issues we have with, with uh, inflation and so forth. So this is just one angle. Here, the employee retention uh, and productivity angle, that, that is why we think it's so important to identify those companies that can do this well. In the spirit of transparency, Catherine, can you speak a bit to some of the challenges associated with the ability for investors to assess LGBTQ plus specific inclusion policies of companies, generally speaking? And then I'm curious, is there a particular sector or area that tends to be more proactive or transparent when it comes to these disclosures? It's such an important issue uh, for me personally, again, from the investment perspective, for reasons just discussed. It is interestingly also such a polarizing topic. Um, which I find a bit curious, given what we know when it comes to DEI helping to drive performance. Um, but with that said, you're absolutely right. Quantifying and assessing how DEI is living within a company or providing potential alpha is um, easier said than done. The S in ESG has, in, in my view, always been harder to get your arms around, not in its salience, but in pointing to a number that might dictate its materiality. Um, and it's, it's not to say that uh, something being hard is not worthy. This is absolutely where I'd say bottom-up due diligence becomes very important, not something you can buy off the shelf from one of these larger providers. It takes talking to the companies, talking to the employees, right? That's especially important. Talking to customers to go beyond just representation or employee makeup and actually thinking about how is this business model impacting queer communities, right? So it's all well and good if you have a, a employee resource group, but if your end product is negatively harming LGBTQ um, identities, then perhaps you 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 come out net negative. Um, so again, a, a similarly long preamble, but I think when we look at companies in the large cap space, because again, mid cap, small cap, just harder to get meaningful disclosure. We're trying to go beyond what's in a sustainability report and actually dig deeper to see how is political spending aligned with. Uh, what a company might put in their marketing materials. How do you get your arms around the medical or healthcare policies and benefits that are uniquely 
um, uh, important to LGBTQ communities, looking at family planning, looking at gender-affirming um, surgery. These, these are all elements that we try to consider within a company's um, not just compensation package, but actual uh, draw to, to work and, and be employed at, at, at an entity. So those aren't easily found absent of really rigorous engagement. And of course, as you mentioned, there are some sectors that lead with it more than others. Um, technology, for example, just given the alignment of values that we see within that workforce and the willingness to walk out and find other employers that are more aligned with their values. This is a place where we see just better transparency. Um, and and I, I do think it's important to say, especially in this time where we see so much backlash around um, companies aligning with the queer community, that this isn't unlike other issues within ESG, right? You can make money on the extremes. I always think about tobacco. It's hard to find an angle for tobacco as having an ESG advantage. You know, maybe their, maybe their crop production is more efficient or something, but that, that's a stretch. And ultimately, it's been a lights-out business from a performance perspective, but it doesn't always fit an investment philosophy. And if you start stretching for companies that perform outside of your investment philosophy, then, then you do enter a slippery slope that might negatively impact your performance. So there will always be compelling names outside of that portfolio discipline. But again, venturing there threatens to jeopardize that consistency. So tobacco killing their customers, that's a bad customer outcome. If you have a strategy like we do at Brown Advisory that is oriented towards supreme customer outcomes, it just doesn't fit. And you know, I, I think this is very um, easily copied and pasted to issues around LGBTQ. Um, so we, we've seen, again, today that there have been many companies that have, have in the short term, profited from um, pulling back on supporting queer folks. And they might have that short-lived economic spike, but these customers will go elsewhere. It's, it's their competitors' gain. And there are some business and, and industries where that is just more important. You look at travel where consumer spend from queer folks is generally higher than, than from, from straight couples. And simple, I think perhaps this is the most complex as it pulls in values, values that are often weaponized for um, political reasons. But at the end of the day, there is a clear case for investment outcomes when done in, in a specific manner. Well, Catherine Amantia, thank you both again for your time and for joining us here on UBS Conversations for the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. We touched on some fascinating topics today, so do appreciate your insights and thank you again for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.